What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You believe that? Sounds like an overstatement by somebody who teaches Bible for a living. But can't really be true. That it just sounds so impractical. I mean, thoughts about God may be important, but aren't there things way more important than thinking about who God is? I think that's a true statement. That's an A.W. Tozer quote. He was a pastor in Chicago for 30 years of a pretty small church, but he wrote some powerful words throughout his life, and that was one of the most powerful. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The reason I think that's true is because we learn everything else after we answer that question rightly. I mean, the last question was, what does God think about you? And that's the most important source of answering that question. There are lots of other sources, aren't there? Social media will give you impressions of yourself that can be tragically distorted and destructive to who you are. I come to you this week, yes, as a preacher, but I come as a, as a father. And I have an incredible fatherly burden for all of you this week. The world you have grown up in, the only world you've ever known is drastically different than the one I grew up in. And that's not some sort of romantic nostalgia I'm talking about. There has been a dramatic shift in the way people think about thinking and about truth and about life and the meaning of life that is causing a kind of devastation that defies how comfortable our lives are relative to the rest of human history. Arguably, our lives are better than they've ever been when it comes to disease and overcoming poverty and ease and convenience and comfort that is so ours. But it's amazing that even as our comfort and our convenience increases, so does our anxiety. So does our depression. So does our self-esteem and body issues and family strife and divorce and shootings and destruction and disease. It seems like the easier life gets, the harder it gets. And so I come to you all with a fatherly burden this week, and I want us to find God this week, every one of us. I realize you come from all different places in your life, in your background, in your family history, in your personality, in the things you love, and the stuff that makes you want to get up in the morning, and the stuff that makes you want to stay in bed in the morning. I know you come from all different places. I know some of you sit here this morning knowing you're not a Christian, and you just came to be with your friends who are. I know some of you here this morning think you're Christians, but you're not. You're just religious or moral people who know a lot of answers, but don't have a relationship with Jesus. Some of you are in a relationship with Jesus, but you're struggling mightily, and I want to help you this week. And some of you are in a relationship with Jesus, and you're thriving at this point in your life. And I want to be helpful to you as well. And so I come asking God on my knees to work in every one of us, myself included, Myself included. I, I want you to know that even though I'm a professor at Biola University and I teach theology and I'm a pastor of a church where I've loved being a part of for 23 years and I, I love my life, I come not just 
as those things, but I come as somebody who's working hard to follow Jesus every day of my life, depending on his grace to do it right along with you, right along with you. And so I want to show you a picture of my family. Well, that's not what you were expecting. That's a picture of my, uh, some of the people in my church family. These actually are food bank workers at Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada. The reason I wanted to show you that picture is because I, I don't ever want you to think of people who stand in front of you up here as in any way disconnected from real life. This is a little sample of the people who feed about 250 families groceries every week in our church. But I know everybody in this picture. And I love everybody in this picture. Some of them are much easier for me to love than others. But that's one of the hardest and best things about the body of Christ. You don't get to pick who's there. God does. And he orchestrates fellowship to shape us in ways we otherwise never would have been shaped if we got to pick who's there. And so that's my church family. That's a little sample of them. Those are the people who take care of my wife and kids if I died today. And I come under their authority with their blessing and prayer and on their behalf, preaching this week. Here's who I get to live with. Uh, my wife of 33 years. We met in high school when we were 16. And I noticed her the first day I transferred to her high school, halfway through my junior year after the third custody battle my parents had. I moved in with my dad, and I went to this new high school. And the first day I noticed that Donna's locker was across from mine, and I noticed her immediately. So I did a little reconnaissance. And I found out she was seriously dating a guy named John. And they were actually going to be class sweethearts in the yearbook, like official class sweethearts. And I was like, wow, those are bad odds. <laughs> but let's see what we can do. And I waited 18 months, and she broke up with John. I had nothing to do with it. And so he was a friend of mine by that time. So out of respect for John, I waited. Two weeks. <laughs> Moved in like El Nino and uh, never looked back. We dated seven years, been married 33. We've been hanging out a long time. She is the most incredible daily conduit of God's grace in my life. She's an incredibly good woman, and I love her dearly. She's my oasis in the midst of life. I love Donna and my four kids. Caroline, or Soda Pop, that's, that's her camp name this summer, working at Wagon Train. She's delightful. And my daughter Paige on the left is an incredibly social person. And my son Sam um, is a tender-hearted boy. He tries to be tough, but if he even sees a dog limping, he'll tear up. Can't help it. Yeah, and then Isaac is the life of the party. He's never met a stranger. And... Um, he, he, he's working at Hume SoCal, actually, all summer. But that's my family I get to live with. So I don't come just as a preacher and a professor and a pastor. I come as a husband and as a dad trying to work these things out and all these challenges life brings our way in every season of our lives. And so, so we're in this together. And most of all, though, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Most of all, I want to follow Jesus with my whole heart taking up my cross daily and following him. But that's not an easy thing to do in our day. It never has been easy, but it's never been complicated. It's incredible how hard it is to actually be a disciple of Jesus in a world that's constantly mocking you for believing anything's objectively true. This week, one of the issues we're going to be talking about is the difference between what we call objective truth and subjective truth. 
objective truth is this thing outside of yourself that's true regardless of whether you believe it or like it or not. It's true. It's truth with a capital T. And then there's this lowercase t truth that is this subjective truth. That, that Sarah beautifully unpacked last night and helped us understand that the constant message of the world is that you make up truth. You get to decide not just what's true, but what's real. And your feelings and your perspectives and your intuitions and inclinations, what's flowing from your gut is what's real and what's true. And anybody who suggests otherwise is a mean-spirited bigot and they should just shut up and let you live your truth. And you let them go ahead and live theirs, but please don't impose your truth on me. That's arrogant to ever think you have truth for everybody. You can understand why people think that way, can't you? I mean, here I am. I've been at life a while now, and I've, I've done some studying and reading and traveling and experiences. But come on, that's a pretty limited perspective, isn't it? Even though, relatively speaking, I may have learned some things in my life and had some experiences, for me to say, I have truth that I know that's true for everybody, everywhere, for all time, that sounds pretty ridiculous if you think about it. And I think it is. <laughs> Unless we have truth given to us from somebody who isn't limited in that sort of way. Actually, I think it's true even more than most people do if we don't have a voice telling us what's true outside of our limited experience because I believe as a Christian that not only do I have limited experience, I have experienced that my sinful heart, the Bible says, suppresses truth and unrighteousness, distorts it and perverts it and turns it around for my own ends and means. And so the story's even worse than most people think it is from my perspective. But thank God, God hasn't left us in our limited sinful perspective, but he's given us his word. He's given us his perspective that isn't limited and isn't fallen and sinful. And so we have truth, we really do. And I want you to know that, that my goal, our goal for you this week is not just filling your head with things that happen to be true, that may lead to some practical better living, but the goal is what John the Apostle says in John 8, when he records Jesus' words saying to the Jews, notice, who had believed him, so they'd come to a belief in Jesus, and he says to him, if you abide in my word, the things I say, the things I teach, what will be the result? You're truly my disciples. You give evidence of actually being mine. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. That's what I want for you this week. That's what God wants for you this week. He wants freedom from the things that are ravaging our lives on a daily basis. And I don't care if you come from the most affluent background, the most comfortable background. You know, a few months ago, I walked into a situation of a family who had a horrible crisis. And, and I walked into their home, and it, they lived in government housing, and, and it was a really rough neighborhood. It was, it was a really tough place they lived, and I walked in, and because of my background, I didn't feel out of place at all. 
And I walked in and I tried to help this family in this horrible crisis where, where the father was crying out to God even though he didn't even have a relationship with God at the time. He does now. But he's mixing in some swear words along the way as he's crying out to God. It was real and it was raw and it was good. And I didn't feel out of place at all. Two weeks later, I went to an island where some of the most wealthy billionaires in the world live. And I ministered to them for a week. And yeah, it's impressive bling when you go to a place like that, but, but if you have a conversation long enough, you, you find out that this guy who owns a yacht that's more expensive than 10 houses, he's heartbroken about his relationship with his son. He hasn't talked to him in years. You talk to this woman and her husband of 40 years leaves her for a younger woman a few years before. And she's devastated. And you know, you realize that over time, we're all the same. Life circumstances can make us look so different, but we're all the same. One of my good friends, Ed, who's actually sitting in the back, he's a dear friend and brother. He works with big time. Raise your hand, Eddie, so they can talk to you if they want to about anything this week as if you don't have enough people wanting to do that. But Eddie said, Ed works with uh, big time professional and college athletes. You know, have everything the world offers. And I heard somebody ask him one time, Ed, how do you work with those guys? They, they don't have any needs. They have everything the world offers. And I'll never forget his answer. He said, oh, I learned a long time ago that everybody, even the big man on campus, is just one or two questions away from crying if they're the right questions. And I believe that's true of all of us. We live in a fallen and broken world, and even though we may be able to construct lives that look pretty good, we are all frail, we're weak, we need forgiveness, and God made us, and he will give us what we desperately need. And so I want us to think about this idea of truth. I want us to realize that we have truth, that we don't have to try to figure it out for ourselves. God's given it to us, and we can depend on God for everything we need. It's a glorious truth, but it requires taking ourselves off the throne of our lives and in our minds, in our attitudes, in our way of living, putting God on the throne where he rightfully belongs to be. That's who he is. He's God, we're not. Sarah said it last night. That's this fundamental realization we've got to get to. And it's not easy because really you could define the human problem as a God complex, thinking I know better than God. The opener last night talked about the fall. Sarah talked about the fall from Genesis 3 last night. What it is is saying, no, God, I know better than you. I understand the knowledge of good and evil, for instance, better than you. And it's because of that lie Sarah talked about that seeped into our heads that we've been believing ever since that keeps causing a problem and causing devastation in our lives. Because God comes along and he says, I made you, I made you for myself in relationship with me, and I know what's true, I know what's right, I know what's wrong, and so listen to me and follow in my ways, and you will find life and it'll set you free. That's what your life is for, a relationship with me and the abundant life and the eternal life that offers. And Satan comes along and says, nah, nah, you better fend for yourself. You, you better take matters into your own hands. 
You, you can't trust him. There's some, there's some chink in the armor of his character that you just can't trust, so you better get after it and make life for yourself. And we put ourselves in the place of God. And I don't think there's ever been a time in human history where that's not more true and even blatantly boasted about. This idea, this phrase, your truth, defies the very definition of truth. You know what truth is? Truth is whatever aligns up with God's character and God's ways. That's what truth is. And why do we say that? Because he's the creator. But this idea that we make truth has run rampant in our day. And we don't even realize how much of a, here's a big term, a radical valid over affirmation of immediate subjective experience and feelings. That's what's true now. And so we've got to combat that and realize that there is a required humility before God and a submission to God and his ways and his word that will lead us only to life that we desperately need. And the truth will set you free, Jesus says, but the key is belief. Not just knowing, but believing. My friend Rick and I, who's back there too, he's a good brother, and my friend Nate sitting back there, those are my bodyguards. And they, they, no, they're good brothers. They're sources of wisdom. Go talk to them about any of these things. But, but my friend Rick and I were briefly talking this morning about the difference between knowing something and believing it, collapsing on it, depending on it. And that's what we're after. Not just knowledge that fills our minds, but knowledge that transforms us. So our lives are to conform to what's really true, what really is reality, regardless of how I may feel from day to day. Reality is what is true because God declares it to be true because it aligns with his character and his ways. And then it's what we see everything by. And so that's what we're after, but we live in a weird world. Listen to what William Borden, one of my heroes, wrote in 1910. William Borden was a very wealthy man who gave up most of his fortune, became a missionary, and died on the mission field at 27. I highly recommend his biography, Borden of Yale. Incredible man. But he was a student at Princeton. He went to Yale and Princeton and then went to the mission field. And listen to what he wrote in his journal as a student at Princeton in 1910. Listen to what he says. I'll find it. Here it is. Listen to what he says. Much more serious is the general agnostic atmosphere pervading everything. Agnostic means we don't have answers. We, we don't have any answers. No, no truth with a capital T. This is 1910. He's saying this as a student at Princeton. This agnostic atmosphere, we just don't have any answers, any knowledge, pervading everything and deadening all convictions, those as to sin and truth included. In line with this, a broad spirit of tolerance is insisted upon, especially in matters of religion, and any and all are considered as narrow who dare think otherwise. That word narrow is one of Satan's deadliest weapons, it seems to me. For most people, would apparently rather be shot than called narrow. Thus, it is even as Christ predicted. The broad way to destruction is thronged. Tons of people going down that road. But few are climbing the narrow way that leads to life. And when we come to distinctively Christian and religious issues... 
the situation's worse than ever. He said that in 1910. Imagine what he'd say now. Imagine what he would say when he looks at our world and as people speaking incoherently in this world. And you know, marketers, I, I think some of them are our most brilliant people in our society work in marketing, especially marketing in relationship to social media. You know, I heard that there are only two industries that refer to its customers as users, the drug industry and social media. And there's a lot of connection, a lot of relationship to that. We're users of this thing that we're addicted to. And marketing's woven into this. And so marketing people are geniuses. You know, I'm, I'm going to never forget, I was walking down the supermarket aisle one time. I mean, I should have known this, I guess. But I'm walking down the supermarket aisle, and, and I'm walking down, and I'm noticing all the cereal is the kind of cereal that I'm interested in buying. You know, pretty healthy stuff. And... I noticed that the, the sugar smacks and the Fruit Loops are down here. Do you know why? It's the eye level of the kid who wants his mother to buy it. They put the cereal at the eye level of the target audience. I thought, that's devious. Manipulating kids and parents with eye-level marketing placement. And I said, I'm going to mess it all up. I'm going to put the, the Weetabix down here. You know, and it, it was unbelievable to me. But that's brilliant, isn't it? That, that, that's great stuff. So marketers do this. And, and then I, I, do you ever read the back of cereal boxes? You, people used to read them all the time because you didn't have your phone to read while you were eating, eating breakfast. So you're sitting there remember, and you used to read the back. Guy, older people, you remember that? You used to sit there and read the back of cereal boxes. But what they want is they don't really care if you read it during breakfast as much as they care that you read it in that five seconds when you're trying to decide what cereal to buy and you turn it around and you read the little blurb about the cereal and you say, oh, I think I'd like this. And you put it in your cart. And so marketers have to put a blurb on the back of cereal boxes that aligns with the people they're trying to target and get to buy this cereal. And so I actually have done a little study of cereal box backs and, and, and critiqued what they're trying to target based on the way people think, because that's what marketers do. They, they're masters of human psychology. They understand how people think, and then they meet that desired outcome people are desiring because of their psychology. And so I, I came across... Two cereal boxes that were hilarious and fascinating to me. One is Blueberry Morning. This is the back of a Blueberry Morning cereal box. This is the back of a Seven Reasons cereal box. Listen to how different the way of viewing the world must be for the people they're targeting with this cereal. Listen to the way the Blueberry Morning marketers are trying to get people to buy this cereal. Listen to this. How must people think and make decisions if this is your marketing approach? Blue is the only color you can feel. You can see red, look green, have a tan. But blue is inside. Blue is a part of you. The deep blue of the sea stirs your soul. A bright blue sky lifts your spirits. The inky blue of midnight rouses passions deep within you. It's cereal, people. Listen, listen. So it's no surprise there's only one truly blue food, one with a taste that's deep and brugial. That's the food of the gods, a taste 
You experience a taste. You feel the taste of blueberries. It's cereal. But lest you think they don't realize that there are some people who think that way and they'll buy cereal based on how it's going to make them feel. But there are other people who are concerned about other issues who buy cereal called seven reasons. And here are the seven reasons right here. Three grams of dietary fiber in each serving, made with organically grown grains, all natural sugars, zero calories from fat. Give me a blue feel. I don't care about all that stuff. I want reasons for my cereal. Is that hilarious? How different these two people are when marketers think about them. Well, there's a whole way of viewing the world that'll lead you to make decisions on one or the other of those. And, and I don't think we make decisions just on reason or on feelings. We make decisions on revelation. And it informs our reason, and it informs our feelings. And everything changes. And so we, we need to realize this isn't just a thing in marketing and in secular society. I want you to read, uh, look at this quote by this, this very uh, popular so-called progressive Christian author. Uh, listen, listen to what, oh, wait. Um, yeah, this is what John's after, John 20. We'll talk about this later too. Jesus does signs. We're going to talk about those. But they're written so that we'll believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing will have life in his name. Sarah mentioned that last night. But listen to what this author says. I think a healthier way of thinking about belief is to think about the kind of lives we choose to live with the words and beliefs that have been handed to us. Perhaps a more important question than what you believe about God is what you'll do with your assumptions of what God is or is not. Will you love God? Will you love your neighbor? Maybe these questions are far more important than what you believe about God or your neighbor. Maybe whether or not you do what Jesus said is more important than the language that you use to describe Jesus. Language is, not just, it, it, language is just not important enough to divide over. People are more important than ideas. Love is more important than the concepts of love. Now, I want to go easy here because I'm sure maybe a good number of you read that and say, well, yeah, that's right. That's just, that's resonating with me. That's ringing true to me. And I understand why, because there is truth here, right? The Bible and God is intensely concerned that we connect our beliefs with our behavior, but that's not what he's saying. He's going way too far and actually starting to talk in ways that are nonsense. And I just want to awaken in you, hopefully, a realization of the nonsense of what he's talking about. Just, let's, let's just look at these last two sentences. People are more important than ideas. Love is more important than the concept of love. The statement, people are more important than ideas, what is that? What is that? What is that sentence? People are more important than ideas. What is that? It's soft. What is it fundamentally? Who said that? Tell me your name. What is it? Sarah. Sarah, yes. It's an idea. Love is more important than the concept of love. What is that sentence? A concept. It's inherently self-refuting and nonsensically incoherent. But people read that now and go, oh, that's deep, man. That's deep. And there's truth to it. Yes, we want to connect certainly, necessarily, our beliefs to our, our living. Absolutely. 
But that's not all he's saying. He, he's saying that belief and ideas and concepts, nah, just live it out as if you could ever make that sort of false dichotomy, that false disconnect, right? And so what we're after is this perspective. Listen to what God says. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. He has the right ideas, the right concepts that lead to a right relationship. And then he gets specific that I am Yahweh, I'm the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who exercises, I do these things, loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. And then we get to his emotional life in this. It's not just resolute commitment, it's love from the inside. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That's what's worth boasting in. That's what we're made for. Relationship with God based in knowledge of God. That's what we're after this week. And we need to realize that love for God demands that we love truth because God is the God of truth. I don't want any mistakes made on this. I don't want any gaps in knowledge from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, on the connection between God and truth and love and truth. Love for God and love for people must be grounded in truth. We are in a time that is a crisis of truth. We're in a crisis of truth. We have ideas of compassion and love, but they're not grounded in truth. So you know what? They're not compassion and they're not love. We're to love in grace and truth, Jesus says. That's how we're to love. Grace and truth, you pull truth out of grace, it's not grace anymore, it's actually cruel because it's not gonna pull people out of false and falsehood and lies, it's gonna leave them there to their own destruction. Please don't think it's loving to say, oh yeah, whatever you wanna believe. That's unloving, it's loving to help people understand the truth. I mean, look at God the Father. And these are just little samples of hundreds and hundreds of verses we could have looked at. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because of the former troubles are forgotten and hid from our eyes. See, he's the God of truth. Twice in this one passage, he describes himself the way God the Son. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is the personification of truth. Truth aren't just ideas and principles and concepts. No, it's a person. He embodies it. He encapsulates it perfectly. That's who Jesus is. Look at God the Spirit. When the counselor comes, whom I send from the Father, Jesus says, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. That makes sense. If he's the Spirit of truth, he testifies about the one who is the truth. Right? So Father, Son, and Spirit, this Trinitarian understanding of God is grounded in truth, and we've got to love truth if we're going to love God. So open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 1. I want to look at just the introductory section of this amazing gospel we'll be focusing on this week. Listen to John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth book of the New Testament. Here it is. Listen to what it says. Listen to this. Listen to this. It's awesome. Here we go. In the beginning... Does that sound familiar? In the beginning, yeah, Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, very intentionally starting this way, the way the whole Bible starts back in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Need to pause there. This Word 
In Greek, for word in English, is the word logos. And this word is an awesome word. Greek thinkers to whom John is primarily thinking here about had used this concept of the logos, the word, as this way of trying to explain this amazing unity that they recognized in all of reality. There seems to be this this unity, this woven togetherness, this intelligence, this rationality, this coherence, this ability to do what I'm doing right now. Make these sounds that are using words and sentences that are connecting with your minds and making sense to you, hopefully. And even if they're not, you're sitting there saying that doesn't make sense, which is a recognition that there's something sensible out there that I'm not doing very, a good, very good job of right now. But, but they had said, how, how do we explain this coherence, this, this, this unity, this sensibility, this ability to converse, and, and this ability to recognize chaos even? You, there can't be anything like chaos if there's an assumed order. And so these thinkers had said, how do we explain this? And so they use this term, the logos, the word, this, this way of doing it. You know, the Hebrew the thinkers had a similar word, davar, which is, again, word. They saw it as the very word of God that has power to create and destroy and heal. So this really important word is one he grabs onto, and his listeners are saying, okay, in the beginning was a word. We're familiar with this. And the word was with God. Oh, that's interesting. So this, this coherent rationality that enables us to think and speak and converse, th- this, this was with God. All right, okay. And the word was God. Oh. So it's not just some abstract thing. It's actually a person with definite characteristics and is divine that we can know and have a relationship with? Yes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, there it is again, to get you thinking about Genesis 1, in the beginning with God. And then listen to this. Who is this Word? Please go on, John. Okay. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. That was made. Is that amazing? That's why God is the boss. You know, one of my kids when she was young, one of her favorite phrases anytime my wife and I would tell her to do something would be, you're not the boss of me. I think of that phrase all the time. We sort of use it in our family jokingly a lot of the time. You're not the boss of me. Who's your boss? Do you answer to anybody? Well, if you're going to answer to anybody, how about the creator How about the one who made you, who knitted you together in your mother's womb, who made everything, spoke it into existence with the word of his power? How about listening to him? Is he allowed to have authority in your life? Is he allowed to be the boss of you? Who better? Who else could be the boss of you, the authority over your life, the one who determines truth, than the one who made you? And listen to this great news, verse 4. In him was life And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh. Now their minds are blown. Wait, wait. This word, who was with God and is God and is the creator, became one of us. He became flesh. He became a human being and dwelt among us. He set up his tent. He tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory. 
as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and bore witness about him and cried out, John did. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now look at verse 18. Here it is. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, this word who's become flesh, he's made him known. And that's Jesus. That, that's who we want you to know this week because through him alone are able, you able to know who God is and have a relationship with God. You see, that's why he's our authority because he's the glorious God. He's perfect. There's nothing in him that needs improvement. He's perfect, so his word is always true. It's always faithful. It's never lacking anything. It's exactly what you need. And if you're really paying attention, it's exactly what you want in your heart of hearts. Because God alone gives us truth with a capital T. He's the one who alone is able to save us from ourselves and our sin and the things that ravage our lives. And so, this is what I desperately want this week. You know, the Apostle John, who wrote these letters after he wrote his gospel, says this to the, 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 the people in the church to whom he's writing here in 3 John. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking with the truth. He's not talking about the children in his household. He's talking about these, these disciples of Jesus, these followers of Jesus here in this church to whom he's writing. And he's saying, my joy is all wrapped up that you walk, follow the journey in relationship with God through Christ that leads you to freedom and leads you to life. And the only way you get there is by walking in the truth. And trusting the one who made you every time he says anything. Tonight we're going to talk about the word of God as the way God has told us who he is and what his ways are. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and your power and your jealousy and your wrath and your justice and your goodness and your perfection and your beauty. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for the certainty of fixing our hope on you and filling our belief with truth from you. Lord, thank you that we don't have to grope around in the darkness trying to figure out what's true with our own wits, but you've told us. Lord, I pray for everyone in here, and I'm thankful the Spirit knows everyone in here perfectly and is able to, to examine our hearts, show us what's there, and bring us to healing and hope, restoration and forgiveness, life abundant and eternal in Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow, and to learn. I pray this week that some would find life in Christ who've never found it before. I pray that some would find freedom who desperately need it in Jesus. Lord, I pray for all of us that you'd be drawing us closer to you because that's what you made us for, yourself. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.